Life is good, right? Y'all agree? Life is good. At least that's what the T-shirts and all the hats say, right? How many of you have a T-shirt or a hat that says life is good on it with a smiley face, little Jake on there? Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that company, but the Life is Good company was founded back in 1994, and they're known for their optimistic T-shirts and their hats and all kinds of other clothing um, accessories with smiling stick figure named Jake and the Life is Good trademark uh, on whatever it is that they're producing. And uh, for five uh, years, two brothers, Bert and John Jacobs, spent uh, time traveling the East Coast trying to sell shirts and hats and things all up and down to colleges and going to dorm uh, after dorm to try to sell them there to go to street fairs. And um, uh, back in August of 1994, the two guys, these two brothers, had $78 to their name. 78 bucks in the bank, and they were close to giving up. They'd been living on peanut butter and jelly. They'd been sleeping in their van. They said they'd shower whenever they had an opportunity. And uh, they were just about to give up, and they set out for this ultimate, what they called the ultimate road trip. And they created this superhero figure whose optimism would show them the way that they needed to go. And so they decided between themselves, somehow they scrounged up enough money to print up 48 shirts to sell at a street fair in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And wouldn't you know, all 48 were sold in under an hour. And as you can imagine, uh, the demand for their product began to rise. It actually went out the roof. And um, uh, they now sell over 900 different items. In 14 different categories, they sell them online, they sell them in 4,500 retail stores all across the United States and in 30 different countries all around the globe. They uh, recorded over $100 million in sales last year alone, and um, they helped spread this power and message of optimism through giving 10% of their profits of the company to the Life is Good Kids Foundation. They've raised about $9 million that have gone towards that cause. And so as I was thinking about this story and reading up a little bit about them this week, I was thinking, you know, for two brothers that had 78 bucks in their pocket, you know, where they're sitting right now, I bet they are saying life is good, right? Would you agree? Life is good. And, you know, life is good, isn't it? It's a gift, it's a, it's a blessing, it's something to be celebrated. But you know, if we're really honest with ourselves and with each other, life isn't just good, but life is hard. Life is hard, it's, it's not always frills and rainbows and ice cream and all the fun stuff of life. Sometimes life will knock you down and step on your neck, right? We've all kind of been there from time to time, and we live in a world that's full of all kinds of temptations and all kinds of uh, tribulations and persecutions, and trouble is to be expected. Everything from flat tires to the death of a loved one, to financial challenges, to physical illness and sickness, um, down to relational stress in a marriage or a family. Trouble is just part of our human story. 
And it really shouldn't surprise us if we look back at the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. He said, in this world you will have trouble. In this world we're going to have trouble. Job, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, said this, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. If you've ever been sitting around a campfire or have a fireplace in your home and you're sitting there and I could just sit there all day long and watch a fire, but the sparks go which way? They go up, right? They go up, not down. And he said, just as sure as the sparks of a fire go up, he said, so you and I are going to come face to face, 2020 vision, with trials and difficulty in this life. Because life is hard. And sometimes those troubles that we face may be circumstantial, and other times they might be caused uh, more directly by people. And the truth is, uh, people can be very loving at times. The other side of the coin is people can be very cruel and self-centered sometimes. People can be just, but sometimes people can act unjustly. And that's kind of the story of where Paul was preaching last week in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, as the author of James was talking to uh, the unrighteous wealthy who were oppressing the righteous poor. They were handing down all kinds of injustices, and their attitude uh, of, uh, of the rich was get all you can as fast as you can any way you can. It's an attitude, if you've ever seen the movie Wall Street, came out years ago with Michael Douglas. He played Gordon Gecko, who was a corporate raider, and he lived by this motto. He said, greed is good. And see, that was the motto of these people in verses 1 through 6. And it was all about themselves, and they treated others unjustly. And it's that greed that caused these believers to experience any number of injustices. And it's not just true then. But it's also true today. It's also can be true for you and me. Have you ever had somebody hurt you deeply? Ever had somebody treat you unjustly? Remember what that was like? You remember some of the emotions and some of the, the feelings? I've been on the receiving end of that, and I've been on the giving end of that, unfortunately. There have been things that I've done in my life that have treated others the way they shouldn't have been treated. I've had other people treat me the way that I wish that they hadn't. And you've probably been there too. And, and it's difficult at times when we're in those kinds of experiences. And, and when you're in the midst of it, how do you, what, do you, what is it that you want the most? You want justice, right? You want wrongs to be made right, and you want it to be done quickly. We don't want to wait for justice to come down. We don't want to wait for resolution. We want it quickly. We want it now. And sometimes we don't want to endure and suffer stress any longer than we have to. And life is hard. And whether it's due to circumstantial reasons or people reasons, the question that we ask and answer is this, how am I going to handle this? And more importantly, how does God want me to respond and handle this. Or if you're not already there, open your Bibles to James chapter 5 this morning. As Paul said, we're going to continue through the series in the month of July. And we're going to see today in verses 7 through 11 that James is going to encourage us uh, to consider an alternative response. Our natural reaction is to retaliate. 
And he's going to encourage us to consider an alternative response and to shape our attitude and our perspective when we find ourselves in the midst of being treated unfairly. And so as you're turning there, let me just mention that the text that we're going to look at today is going to ask and answer two key questions. And the first, I alluded to it a moment ago, is how does God want us to respond when we've been treated unfairly? And the second question is this, where does the motivation, where does the strength, where does the ability, where does the inspiration come from to help us respond in a godly way? So look with me, if you will. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7, he writes these words, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it. Until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Well, The very first word in verse 7 is the word therefore. And it points you back to verses 1 to 6 that I mentioned a moment ago when the oppression of the righteous poor sets the stage for this message here in verses 7 to 11 and it addresses the kind of attitude that he wants them to adopt, the kind of response that they are to have. And what follows in the rest of verse 7 answers that first question is how does God want me to respond when I'm being treated unfairly? Very straightforward and quickly he says, be patient, brethren. We're to exercise patience. And patience is going to be mentioned four times. It's a theme that in this section that, that he's wanting to draw their attention to. And patient is a word that means long-tempered. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. It means to have a long fuse. And it's a word that relates more to uh, in regards to people and less in regard to circumstances. So he's really talking about relational stuff here in this passage. He also speaks, or Paul does, in Galatians of patience as being a fruit of the Spirit. And if you've been in a situation like I've been describing, sometimes we need some supernatural help uh, to help us respond patiently and to exercise patience in our life. In verse 6 last week, it said the righteous don't resist. They don't retaliate out of vengeance, but they're content to suffer for Christ and to let vengeance belong to God. And that is something that's a whole lot easier to say than to do. Would you agree? It's a whole lot easier to tell someone to be patient than to be patient, especially in times of difficulty. And uh, I remember a number of years ago, I was faced with having to make a, a significant decision in my life, and I was, um, I was committed to wanting to walk in integrity and, and to base my decision on biblical principle. And it wasn't a snap decision. It was something that I prayed extensively about. I invited others to pray about with me. And I made my decision. And it really was something that wasn't that difficult to make in light of the circumstances. But, but some of the reasons for my making the decision that I made weren't known to other people. 
And I knew it was the right decision, but when I made it, uh, I kind of made some quick enemies. There were things said about me, about my family, that weren't true, things that um, I wanted uh, very quickly to have the record set straight. I wanted to share some of the information that helped me come to the conclusion that I did. And I can't tell you how hard it was for me not to do that. But as I prayed, as I sought the Lord's direction, I had other people encourage me. There's a verse uh, that I want to share with you that the Lord laid upon my heart, I think it's appropriate for what we're talking about. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. It speaks of Jesus and his response when he was in the trial of his life. And it says this, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And it was going back to that truth time and again. I went back to it a lot. <laughs> Had to go back to it a lot, but it helped curb my appetite for retaliation. It helped me to rest in God and to allow God to, to rectify and to reconcile and to bring about the desire of my heart. And so he says we're to exercise patience. And he says we're to exercise patience until the coming of the Lord. Christ is going to come back. Aren't you glad about that? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples and he gives them the last commission and he takes off up into the heavens and they're left there going, what in the world has just happened and where'd he go? And a couple of angels are standing there and Luke tells us in that passage that they said, just as surely as you saw him leave, he is going to come back. And the church in this time as we wait between the first and the second coming of Christ, we, we wait with anticipation. We wait with anticipation for a future point in time and in God's time for resolution and for all things to be made right. And he says the, uh, next, the farmer, this is the first of three examples that James is going to present to the believers there. Uh, of those who modeled patience. And he says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now, uh, I'm not a farmer, don't know a whole lot about farming, but I do know that farmers um, do some work. They've got to cultivate the soil, and then they've got to sow the seed, and the next thing they've got to do is Wait. That the seed that goes down in the ground, it takes some time before the crop comes forth. And a farmer has to exercise long-temperedness. He has to exercise patience as he waits for what he hopes will come to fulfillment in the future. And that's what James is trying to encourage them uh, to remember. He has to wait until the early and the late rains have come, the early rains. And, and Daryl Hopkins was sharing with me just a little bit ago something that I learned that I didn't know. But the early rains uh, were focused around helping root development to take place. And the latter rains were for the fruit development. And so both were necessary and both were required to bring about what the farmer hoped he would see in the end. And, and that's an example of what James is saying. Just like a farmer, we've got to be patient and wait sometimes for things to be made right. And we don't like to wait. I shared the first hour. I remember Christmas as a little kid. You do too. And my brother and I didn't like to wait. I mean, we were anxious on Christmas Eve, and we'd go to bed, and we'd wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and, and want to, you know, 
knock on mom and dad's door and wake them up. And they didn't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning. I don't know why, but you know, uh, I remember my brother and I, we didn't want to wait. And they'd want to get up and make coffee. And we're like, come on, you know, um, we didn't want to wait. We, we wanted, but you know what? There's a proverb. Proverb 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And there's benefit. There's blessing in the waiting. And it makes, when you wait and the fulfillment comes to pass, it makes it that much sweeter. And so exercising patience is hard, but that is what James is telling the believers here. It's what God is telling you and me. This is how we're to respond in the midst of injustice, is to exercise patience. Second, in verse 8, or before we get to verse 8, verse 7 kind of tells us how we're to respond with patience, but it begs another question. And that's this, is how in the world do we practically do that? How do we live out patience? How do we exercise patience? Patience And where does the motivation and the strength come from to respond patiently in those kinds of situations? And so with the verses that follow, I want to I give you four keys, uh, look in four directions to help you find the strength and the motivation to be able to respond with patience. And number one, we're to look forward and exercise faith in his promised return. Like the farmer... He says, who has long patience, you too be patient. And he says, and strengthen your hearts. It's a, a word that Luke used in Luke chapter 9 in the Gospels as Jesus was anticipating his going to Jerusalem and anticipating the passion and the crucifixion and all that was ahead. And it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. It says he was resolute that he was determined, that he was committed, that nothing was going to prevent him from moving ahead. And aren't we glad that he did? But it says he, he, he set his face. It's the same word here, to strengthen your heart. And he says to strengthen our hearts. And the reason that we should is because the coming of the Lord, James says, is near. And that ought to give us hope. Because the church, you and me, we're waiting for the day when Jesus comes back. And there will be a better day. There will be a better home for us. It's, it's like the video said, it's, it's not our home. Peter says that we're aliens in this world, strangers. We've been created for another place, another life. And, and so the coming of the Lord is something that will usher in a time of his presence that will wipe away every tear where there will be no more sadness, there will be no more pain. There will be a peace and a joy that our hearts and our minds have never experienced before on the planet. And we look forward as Christians for that day. That strengthen your hearts as a result of that. Uh, part of that word has as the root part the word prop. As in a prop. And I broke my leg in high school pretty badly, and I was on crutches for a few months. And I had to prop myself up because I couldn't put weight on my leg. And I, when I was weak, I needed those to help me. And basically what James is saying here is he tells them to strengthen their hearts. He said, like crutches or like you'd lean on something. He said, prop yourself up by thinking and looking forward to the promised return of Christ. And that will be a source 
of motivation for you. Not only are we to look forward, but we're to look inward and exercise self-restraint. And the reason that we're to do that, he says in verse 9, is because judgment is coming. James says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. It's a word that means this, to groan silently or inwardly. It's an unexpressed feeling of bitterness or smothered resentment expressed in a groan. And that sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? But that's, that's what complain, that's the word that he's using here. And what happens when, when we lose patience, when we do decide to complain? Well, we get frustrated, right? We complain, we grow bitter. If you've ever been around somebody, my dad used to talk about this when he was struggling with his cancer. He said, David, sometimes I wake up and I feel great. Sometimes I wake up and I'm chewing barbed wire for breakfast. And you know, when, when, when you're somebody that wakes up bitter every day, it doesn't just affect you, but it affects people around you. And so he's saying, don't complain against one another. And in this context, it, he's saying it wouldn't just affect the people who are giving you trouble. It's going to be affecting the people, your fellow brethren who are trying to help you along. And so he says, don't complain. And the reason that he says is because judgment is coming. And there is a judgment that you and I as believers will face. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 14 and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And that you and I are going to stand before the Lord and that we are going to give an account for our life. Just me, nobody else, and Jesus. And James is saying, not to, not to make you fearful, but he's saying, acknowledge and recognize. Think and take pause before you complain. Exercise patience because there will come a time of judgment. Now, our salvation is secure. We won't be judged at the judgment seat of Christ and cast away from him. That's, that's taken care of. But we will give an account for the life that we've lived unto him. And so we're to look inward and exercise self restraint. Well, we look forward to his return. We look inward to exercise self-restraint. And thirdly, we're to look back. We're to look back and to emulate the example of others. And James says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, he says, take the prophets. Now, he presents the prophets of God as models of people who went through patience, uh, went through suffering with great patience. And they spoke the word of God. And in the, in the uh, 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it describes what they experienced, the hardness of life. As they experienced mocking and scourgings and chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death by the sword, afflicted, ill-treated, wandered in the deserts, mountain caves, and holes in the ground. Being a prophet was not easy. It was tough. They had to exercise great patience, and they suffered, uh, surely. But you know, James is saying, as you look to those prophets, they serve as examples to give motivation and inspiration for you to respond the same way. And I, I, I'm just curious if there's an example in your life, somebody that maybe you have watched exercise great patience. Uh, someone who's gone through times of suffering in the midst of injustice and have made the decision to look back at the example of others. And I've shared the first hour. I'll share it with you. There, there are two ladies in my life uh, 
that have really modeled that and have helped me to learn. I've, I've grown in this area, but I'm not there, okay? Work in progress. But it's not been easy for me over the years. But the two women in my life that I have watched exercise great patience, one is my mom, uh, and particularly as I watched how she responded to my dad's battle with cancer for 14 years, uh, he suffered physically, he suffered emotionally, um, and ironically, it was interesting how the Lord used that to not make him suffer spiritually. God drew him back through that to himself. And, and uh, to this day, I've, I've not ever heard my mother mention a word of complaint about it. She gladly did. And some of you have done the same for loved ones and cared for them. And, but I've watched that, and I've recognized that, and I'm inspired as I think about that. The other is, is my wife. Um, we just had our 18th uh, wedding anniversary uh, in the earlier part of the month, and we've been in ministry now close to 20 years and have experienced um, our share of trials and troubles uh, and injustice, if you will, at times. We haven't lived a horror story, but we've, we've had our share. And one of the things that's inspired me is to watch how I have seen her respond in situations with a prayerful heart and an exercising patience um, in a way that has helped me to grow. And so looking at the, back at the example of others can motivate us uh, to respond the way God wants us to with patience. And lastly, to look up to God. God wants us to look up to him and we're to embrace the Lord's purpose as well as to embrace the Lord's provision. It's to see the bigger picture uh, we count those blessed, James writes, who endured. The word blessed means happy or fortunate. And we don't think of people that go through suffering as those who are blessed. But he's saying those who endure suffering uh, are blessed in the end. And, and here in uh, verse 11, uh, his plea is for perseverance and endurance. He's talked about patience in verses 7 to 10. But specifically, as he talks about Job, he's going to shift gears a little bit and focus on this term perseverance. And why is the one who endures called blessed? Well, if you flip back to James chapter 1, verse 12, he said this, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, as in passing the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who love him. And what James is wanting to say to these believers, what God is wanting to say to us today is that endurance will yield blessing. It may not come in the time that you and I want. It may not come in our days on earth, but it will come. Blessing will come to those who endure. And he says, you have heard of the endurance of Job. And James gives here his third example. He talked about farmers. He talked about prophets. And now he directs their attention to Job was a man who determined, was determined to endure whatever came his way as he waited for God to kind of clear the fog. And as Job did, so we've got to first embrace the Lord's purpose. Listen to these two verses that were written or is quoted by Job. He said this, though he, God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And later in chapter 23, Job says, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth 
as gold. Job was a man who trusted God. He was a, a righteous man, but Satan unleashed hell itself on his family, and he killed all of his children. Uh, he took away every possession that he had. He destroyed his crops. He um, destroyed his physical health, and yet through all of that, Job endured, and he embraced the Lord's purpose. Going back to James chapter 1, again, just the inspiration to endure, it says that trials and testing produce endurance. And it says endurance through them, not over them, not around them, not underneath them, but endurance through trials. He says produces maturity and completeness in Christ. And so there's a perfecting element of trial and endurance to who God wants us to be. And if I had more time, I'd love to talk about um, the blessing of pain or how pain is a, actually a blessing in our life and uh, there's a book that I read years ago maybe you've read it too by Philip Yancey it's called Where is God When It Hurts and um, I love reading Philip Yancey's writings um, but there's a chapter on pain that he calls the gift that nobody wants and in a nutshell I'll mention this he basically says pain has a purpose that pain perfects us. And that he also says that pain is necessary because without it, we would never really truly know what joy is. We wouldn't experience joy apart from the hardships of life. And so in his book, uh, Hope Again, Chuck Swindoll writes these words. If you want to smile through your tears, if you want to rejoice through times of suffering, just keep reminding yourself that what you're going through is not the end of the story. It's simply the rough journey that leads to the right destination. Isn't that good? Getting to where God wants us to be will not be trouble-free. It won't be pain-free. And it certainly is going to require us to exercise patience and to endure difficulties. And that right destination that Chuck Swindoll talks about, what is it? I think Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 make that clear. And that's that God is working all of these things. And all things aren't good, but he works all these things together for good. So that what? We may be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's God's goal. And that's how God uses struggle. And that's why he says endure, because it's for your good to do so. And there will be blessing on the other side. And the only way we'll experience that is if we learn to first embrace his purpose and then lastly we've got to embrace the Lord's provision we embrace the Lord's provision James says you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful and trials have tested my faith they've tested your faith and maybe for some of us They've caused us at times to question the character of God. Maybe we really wonder, God, do you care? And are you aware? And have you forgotten me? Or have you forsaken me? And while the Bible tells us that none of that is true, sometimes our emotions have a hard time catching up with that reality. And so trials sometimes ask, or cause us to ask such questions. And so James, if you're one of those people, is saying, when you find yourself wondering, 
He says, remember the character of God. Remember that God is one who is full of compassion and is merciful. It's literally that God is many-boweled. We talk about how we feel things in our gut, right? And what James is saying is God has a tremendous capacity to feel deeply in his gut, if you will, the things that we feel and to empathize and to have compassion for us. It also says he's merciful. It's a word that means to pity. In other words, that God is tender towards us. He has pity upon us and is sensitive to where we are. And so as we face unfair treatment from others, we find the strength to exercise patience and endure by resting in his character. And folks, he really is a God who has our best interest at heart. He has my best interest at heart. He has your best interest at heart. And Psalm 8411 speaks of God as a sun and a shield. That He's our source of power. That he is our protector. That he's a giver. That his heart is to bless. That he gives grace and he gives glory. And the psalmist goes on to say he withholds nothing good from those who walk uprightly. That God's heart is to give to his own. And if you'll note, at the end of the story, at the end of Job, despite all the horrors that he did really experience, it says that God gave him twice as much as he had before. God blessed him for his perseverance and his endurance. As we close, I don't know if the name Louis Zamperini is a name that's familiar to you or not. But if you're not sure about who he is by his name, you might recognize the story that was written about part of his life in a movie that came out recently called Unbroken. Have you seen that? It tells the story of this captain in the Air Force and of what he endured uh, as a prisoner of war. He was going out on a rescue mission at sea when his plane crashed into the ocean. And he and some of his friends were left adrift for 47 days on the open sea with almost no hope of being found. But they were found. But they were found by an enemy warship that took them out, sent them off to a a prison camp where for two years Louis and his fellow prisoners of war were tortured and beaten relentlessly by the injustice that was handed down by someone... um, Matsuhiro Watanabe, who the prisoners called the bird. And uh, Zamperini endured all that was thrown at him until, until there was a day of deliverance. And a day of deliverance did come. It came on September 2nd, 1945, when World War II, that had been going on for six years, came to an end. And there was deliverance for he and his fellow men. There was judgment that was executed on enemies. And the deliverance for him must have been sweet beyond belief because of what he had gone through and only to come out on the other side. But if you know the rest of the story, he didn't just have a deliverance from his imprisonment as a prisoner of war, but he also had a deliverance. A day of deliverance came for his soul. Louis Zamperini came home from the war with erect marriage and alcoholism that was tearing up his life. And his wife, 
invited him to a Billy Graham crusade. In 1949, he and his wife gave their lives to Jesus. Uh, and Louis was committed to serving the Lord for the rest of his days. You know, folks, life is hard. We talked about life is good, but you know what? Life is hard too, isn't it? Life is hard, and it's difficult to exercise patience when we're being tested. But I hope that as you think about James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, I hope that you'll be reminded of what James wanted his fellow believers in his day to know and what God is wanting us to know here today, that even though it's hard, it's possible. It's possible with God's help that we can respond in a godly way with patience in the midst of trial as we're committed to look ahead to his return. As we commit ourselves to, to look back to the examples of others as we are committed to look inward and to exercise self-restraint and ultimately as we look up to God and embrace his provision and his purpose. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks for your love for us and for your presence here today. And, and Lord, uh, this is a, a good word. It's a hard one, too. Because it's not easy for us when we experience the injustices of life, things that come our way. But, Lord, as James reminded these people, I pray that you would remind us that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts and our Minds to remember, you want us to exercise great patience. You want us to endure the hardships of life and that we're to do that as followers of Christ. We look forward to a better day, to a day that will come when all wrongs will be made right. That we will stand in your presence and that there will be no more sadness, be no more injustice will simply enjoy you forever. And God, I pray that that truth, that hope that we have would motivate us today and this week. Lord, as we go, we pray that we would just celebrate the great freedom that we have through all that Jesus has accomplished for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,